load the plates and lift the weights And we are mates and weights are great And as of late we pontificate about the weights And make a podcast! Sumo is cheating! This is Weekly Weights with Alex and Will Welcome to episode 89 of Weekly Weights. I'm Alex Hayes, with me is Will, and joining us today is Eric Bodhorn from The Strength Athlete. So, funny story, when we had Bryce on, off camera after we finished recording, he said, you should get Eric on, he loves programming, he's a bit of a nerd with programming, and he's got some sick playlists for the gym. That so is we a like, hilarious story. We're like, you know what, we'll get Eric on. <laughs> we did say that then. We, we said we'll do it right away. That was like... Almost a year ago. <laughs> so that's classic us. But anyway, any- thanks for coming on, man. How are you? Thanks for having me. Um, I'm doing well. Do you want to just um, give everyone who's not familiar with you a bit of an intro about yourself, who you are, your gym, your coaching, whatever? Sure. Um, so I've been working with the strength athlete with, with Bryce and, and Henny and Joe and, uh, for about six years now. I started in early 2014. Uh, Bryce, Bryce started the company at the end of 2013 and Hanny and I joined shortly after that um, just because of the growing demand. Um, we had all known each other previously through various uh, bodybuilding and powerlifting ventures, but um, that's kind of been my main, my main focus for the last six years or so outside of opening a gym uh, last year. So I opened Elevate Barbell here in Colorado at the end of 2018. So we've been open for a little over a year now. Um, so I've been kind of juggling that and the online coaching uh, for the last year or so. Cool, man. And tell us a bit about Elevate because Alex and I, you know, we both follow Bryce and Natalie quite closely and they both train out of your facility. What's it like there? Uh, it's a lot of fun. We have some really good uh, evening training sessions. That that tends to be when it's the busiest, when when all the uh, the main powerlifting group comes in. Um, and I don't know if inspirational is the right word, but it's 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 definitely a a good environment to train in when you when you see the work it takes to to make progress from from a high level athlete. Um, you know the good and bad days, uh, the mentality it takes in, in training. Um, I think everyone kind of feeds off of that and and. I would say for pretty much everybody in the gym, it's it's been the most progressive year of training. Um, and I think that that certainly plays a part in it and uh, the culture that we've created and, uh, you know, everyone kind of being there for each other, helping them pick weights, um, you know, choosing appropriate weight selection for RPEs and things like that and just uh, pushing each other and um, you know, having people hold you accountable in your training. I think that's important. In your intro of yourself, you didn't actually mention much about your own training or your own achievements. Is your background all powerlifting or have you had some bodybuilding crossover? What's up? I've competed in natural bodybuilding. That was quite a long time ago um, in 2011. And I actually did my first powerlifting meet that same year while I was prepping for bodybuilding, which is not a good idea. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, that was, uh, I think, August 2011. I did my first powerlifting meet. And then October of 2011, I did my first um bodybuilding show and I did, I did a few more after that but um quickly realized that year that powerlifting was a lot more fun so um i stuck with competing in that for the next few years and then uh i found more enjoyment on the coaching side of things rather than than competing so i haven't competed much um in more recent years but um that's kind of where i started yeah sure and so you said you said that this year um at elevate's been probably the most progressive year for everyone's training how do you find your own training has benefited from having higher caliber lifters around you? Um, I don't know that my own training has, has benefited that much because I, I feel like when I'm in, in the gym, I kind of always have to be on because I, I handle the programming of a lot of the people that we train with. Um, so I try to train during times where I'm kind of away from the crowd and I can focus in on my own work. Um, and not you know answer questions or be doing spotting and things like that or helping with technique. So I've I've actually tried to to get away from the crowd a little bit and uh, and do my own thing and, and that's been beneficial too. Okay, well maybe let's well frame the question more broadly. What's what is it about having a training environment like you said that's supportive where people are around you feeding off each other? What is it that you think that that does for for up and coming lifters? Because it's definitely something Alex and I noted in our own development that when we started training with more serious lifters our own lifting really took off 
I think for a lot of the novice or intermediate lifters that we have come in and, and join the gym, they realize that they're not working anywhere near as hard as they could when they see when they see what some of the other people are doing and and how much work it takes to get better at a high level you know just to get that next two and a half kilo pr um you're doing a, a ridiculous amount of work in some cases to earn that and i and i think there's a general appreciation for that that goes around sure man so the, the purpose of this podcast other than a pretty protracted plug of elevate which sounds sick by the way um <laughs> weekly weights 10 guys for all signups at elevate 10% off for the first year. <laughs> Can you confirm that, Eric, on air? I'll, I'll confirm that. Oh, wow, there know. we go. <laughs> I don't that's know how much. That's the second sponsorship we've bullied our, bullied our ways into. <laughs> Brett Gibbs actually actually put a discount code up on his squat inch deadlift apparel store after we made that joke online because he was like, oh, shit, people are probably going to try and do it, so I might as well. And he gave, it, us, it, he gave us 20% instead of 10 Oh, yeah, that's right. He went above and beyond. If, if we get local people that come in to join based off of this podcast, I will absolutely honor that. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, you'll probably get people wanting to start franchises all over Australia off this podcast. <laughs> all right. So the purpose of this podcast actually was to talk about peaking strategies because as Bryce said, Eric's a bit of a nerd on programming. Um, so I guess the first, first port of call is talking about peaking for powerlifting, what it is and why we do it. So do you want to just give us the rundown on what peaking is? Um, in a more general sense, I, I think we're just looking at having the athlete perform at their best given whatever time frame that we have left. Um, but I would throw that back at you and ask you whether peaking and tapering are the same thing. I don't think the tapering – I'll answer straight off the bat and see if Alex agrees. I don't think the tapering and peaking are, like, semantically speaking, the exact same thing. And I don't think that peaking necessarily entails a taper, although mm. typically it does. Um, I see tapering as like the acute reduction in fatigue you do possibly at the end of a peaking period, whereas peaking is the training that carries you from being sort of generally prepared to lift to being as prepared as you can. So peaking involves, in my opinion, getting people acclimated to or prepared to lift the heaviest loads that they possibly can which might mean exposure to some very, very heavy loads in training and a reduction in training volume. And a taper may or may not come at the end of that peak to ensure that when they walk in on competition day, they're ready to perform. They're slightly different things from my perspective. Alex? Yeah, I agree entirely with that. But I think what I've just, what I've given you is probably the, the very vanilla conceptualization of them. Would you have agreed? Yeah, I think that's a good way to define it. But we can get into more of the semantics if you want to. Yeah, absolutely. I think we might yeah, as well. That's why we're might, in the podcast. It might be good to uh, talk about the fitness fatigue model and how that relates to peaking for competition. Sure. Um, I think in, in some ways that might be a bit outdated when we when we look at more traditional strategies um, from, from some of the coaching companies that have been more popular lately. But just in general, we're looking at the, the adaptations that you make to training are – the positive ones at least are, are your fitness adaptations. And then the fatigue would be the negative adaptations of, of stress and volume accumulation and things like that, that you might not be able to to recover from. Um, so there's always the possibility that the amount of work you're doing is masking your ability to perform at a high level or at your highest level. Um, and the idea is that we, we take away a little bit of that fatigue by either reducing volume or changing the training to some extent in order to have them perform at their best when it counts. And so you said that that thinking might be a little bit outdated in light of what some coaching companies are doing now. Was that a reference to things like emerging strategies that Mike Teixeira's begin to popularize? I think so. Yeah. And, and, we don't necessarily have terms for what we, for what we do, but we, we've we've tried to be more adaptive in the way that we we peak athletes for competition um, in terms of like how we're reading their responses to training and um, adjusting their microcycles appropriately, things like that. Okay, let's get tangential because you said you don't necessarily have names for the concepts that you apply. To what degree do you think as coaches, particularly like when you're up and coming and most of your learning has been from reading? and stuff as opposed to actual experience and writing programs and things for yourself. To what degree do you think that 
a lot of coaches' thoughts and practices are sort of shaped by the concepts that are presented to them. So like, say, the fitness fatigue model, which might be a good lens to look at training through, but doesn't necessarily capture all the nuance. Mm-hmm. Do you reckon, um, yeah, to what degree do you think that shapes people's thoughts? And do you reckon that has drawbacks? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think all of us have, as coaches have have experienced that in the past when maybe, you know, we're early on in our coaching career and we know what's worked for us in the past, you know, certain training approaches or certain exercise selection and different, different things like that. It's hard not to apply those things and, and, you know, hope they work for a certain population if, if it seems similar to you. So I, I, I think there's, there's good and bad with that because you, you might have an, a general idea of things that could work, but, um, it also closes the lens a little bit to, to what's possible. So, um, I think it's important to uh, be able to expand on that a little bit and 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 try some different things. And then that's the only thing that the only way that comes by is is by trial and error and working with you know hundreds of athletes to get an idea of what works in certain situ- certain situations. So I think something that I personally quite admire about say Mike Teixeira to bring him back um, and the discussion we had with him recently on weekly weights um, is that he's. He's very, um, he's very clear when he says sort of that, you know, what he's talking about or the lens that he's looking at training through as a heuristic. It's not designed to be like all encompassing or absolutely accurate, but it's simple enough to be usable. And then he's also, he's skeptical enough of his own heuristics to be aware of their limitations and where they might fall down. And so I think maybe having that lens when we look at our training programming, where we say, you know, this tends to work and this might be the reason that it works but I'm, you know, I'm not certain under these circumstances. I'm not sure how far I can take this thinking. Might be a way to avoid a few of those pitfalls when we write programs. Right, and you're you're able to refine that over time just based on experience and, you know, seeing that uh, a lifter with ABC problems responds well to XYZ stimulus and and being able to input those things. Yeah, well, I mean, ideally, I don't know if I've been actually much good at refining my practice over time. I just get new clients, right? Sure. you absolutely deadpanned that so we've 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 basically agreed that peaking is training that is designed to prepare you for lifting the heaviest that we can on the platform and in my answer to you i alluded to the fact that that might entail lifting pretty heavy weights in training do you think that it necessarily has to i think you at least need to have some exposure up to maybe 90% or so for a single, ideally probably more than that so that you can have a better target of where you're going to aim for, for your, for your competition. But the bulk of your training volume doesn't need to come anywhere near that necessarily. So um, I think more commonly we see that a lot of people will, will train in like the 80 to 90% range for the bulk of a peaking phase and really not expand beyond that. But I think there, in some situations, there can still be some value in, in getting some volume in, in that 60 to 70% range, stuff like that, while still handling some of those, those heavier top sets and those kind of things. So what might be, um, to expand for the listeners, what might be some drawbacks of training, say heavier than 90% a lot? And then on the flip side, what might be some of the benefits to exposing yourself to weights that are heavier than say an opener? There's, there's certainly psychological pros and cons to it because depending on the lifter, some will have more anxiety in approaching a set like that compared to a, you know, a normal working set in the 70 or 80% range. You know, when you start having to hype yourself up and, and things like that, there's, there's uh, the arousal component and, and everything that goes into making a successful 90% lift or more. Um, so there can be pros and cons with that because sometimes you want to expose your athlete to that, to kind of numb that that uh that arousal and get them used to that get them more comfortable in that that uh training range and then other times you might be more likely to experience some psychological burnout because you know it takes a little bit more to get up for those kind of working sets um compared to your your typical range where you can accumulate more volume alex i wouldn't mind throwing this question to you how heavy do you think that you need athletes to lift in their preparation for you to have sufficient information as a coach to make a good guess as to what they can lift on competition day? Uh, I think somewhere between 90 and 95%, um, which is going to be somewhere between an opener and a second. 
and probably around 90 to 92 for a deadlift. Okay. Um, but with that said, I think there are benefits to going above 95% from like a psychological standpoint for the lifter. You mentioned that some people have to get more sort of G'd up and pumped up for a set above 90%. But I think that if you don't expose them to weights above 90%, when they get on the platform, it can be that same anxiety and they've almost, they're almost unsure if they can do it because they haven't. Yeah, sure. So I think there's benefits. There's obviously benefits both ways, but you kind of have to find that balance between what's enough to keep them confident enough that they're going to be able to hit their max capabilities in the meet and then what's actually enough to provide enough stimulus and what's too much. But I think um, what you just said then, Eric, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this too. It kind of cuts both ways yeah. because if you have lifters that do get anxious with high intensities and you want to expose them to that to sort of inoculate them against it for competition day, that has a greater drawback. But at, um, so like that's a potential downside to doing it. But then you might have lifters who are very cool, calm and collected mm. when lifting very heavy weights, in which case the, the downside to them lifting heavier might be less also, but it also might be less necessary. Mm. So there's like, a, from what you said, there doesn't seem to be a very clear profile of who might benefit from touching the heaviest weights. Eric, what do you think about that? Do you reckon there are some ways we can identify lifters who might benefit from going heavy? I, I think it's it's very lifter dependent and also lift dependent. There's there's certain personality types that will cater cater well to that, and then certain certain others where you'd want to stray away from it. I, I think in, in general, the ones who who tend to overshoot RPE or really push it a little bit with the intensity, those ones you might want to pull back on a little bit and be more conservative with with both the programming and the amount of exposures to to heavy top sets, just because of of the the harm and the training stress that they can put on themselves in those situations. Whereas somebody who just has some anxiety towards handling heavier weights, but is comfortable with training volume and things like that, it's relatively easy to introduce them to more, more, you know, conservative singles at seven or eight RPE, whatever it is. And, and just kind of ease them in that way to a, to a peaking phase. And so when you have an athlete yourself that you're coaching into a peaking phase, how do you frame discussions around these final heavy workouts? Like Alex and I have here and there called the heaviest sessions indicator sessions. So we're, we're not always looking for the highest performance we can get from our athlete, but we are looking for information on where their performance capabilities are. So it just needs to be heavy enough. But that gives them something to strive for while also sort of capping in their head how important absolute intensity is. Do you do similar things? So I'll, I'll usually shy away from talking about specific weights as far as attempts until the, the actual meet week, once they've already gone through the majority of their heavy work. And in the lead up, I'll, I'll kind of give them a guideline of, of what we're aiming for. So, you know, you're, you're single at eight for this week, we're probably going to aim for this kind of range, you know, 240 to 245 kilos, something like that. Um, because, and I, and I can do that because with, with what I do for coaching is, is weekly video chats. So, you know, instead of, you know, sharing emails back and forth, we'll, we'll have a dialogue about, about the training week, uh, go over their previous training footage. And, um, you know, based on what we saw in the previous week, we kind of have a pretty good idea of what we're aiming for in the upcoming week, that kind of thing. So I'll, I'll give them usually a range to aim for. And, you know, like you said, it's, it's generally, you know, somewhere between a first and second is about as, as heavy as we'll go. You know, sometimes unintentionally we'll go beyond that, but, um, or, or sometimes intentionally as well, but um, most of the time we're not going much heavier than a second attempt in type of weight in training, which is, you know, maybe 95% or so. You mentioned um, earlier that it's lift dependent. Do you want to go into a little bit more detail on that? What are the differences between how heavy you would go in the squat versus the bench versus sure. the deadlift? I think a lift like bench press, you, you can take fairly heavy singles on that very often, um, pretty much year round in almost any phase of training. I like to include it pretty often just to, to keep some heavy exposure in there and so that you don't forget how to bench heavy, even while you're accumulating, you know, maybe new training volume. Um, so for example, in my own training right now, I'm doing heavy singles three days a week that are roughly 90 to 95% of my capability with whatever variation it is. Um, you know, some of those are, are main competition days. Some of those are, are Larson press or three count pause, whatever it is. Uh, but I'll work up to something fairly heavy on each of those days. And, um, and now those, those kind of weight ranges are 
an afterthought at this point where, you know, I, I think if you, if you stray away from that and you just, you know, go to doing volume in like the 60 to 80% range, it can take some, some additional time to get more comfortable in those, those heavier ranges. Um, so I, I think things like that can help to kind of bridge the gap between higher volume phases and strength phases where so you, you kind of, you still have some of those heavier top sets built in there. Why do you think that's the case with the bench, but not the other two? Uh, there's, there's just a lot less stress involved with, with bench press. You don't have, um, you know, the same kind of axial loading as you would with a squat. Um, and you're, you're used, for most people, at least you're handling a lot less weight. Um, so it's, it's just a, a much easier bench to recover from. You know, most of the people that we work with coaching are, are benching anywhere from three to five days a week. Um, you know, there's a few that might be a little bit less than that, but on average, that's kind of what we're looking at. So if they're able to recover from that, you know, it, it tends to be pretty easy to, you know, sneak in a few singles there too. So if bench is the one where you think you can sustain maybe the heaviest peak loading and maybe the most protracted high loading, is there one or two of the other lifts that you think benefit from a very abrupt peak or one where you don't need as much exposure to high intensity? Probably deadlift. And, and I think deadlift, you, you need the more, the most time in order to be prepared. You know, you can, you can take your last heavy deadlift anywhere from a week to two weeks out and, and not do too much else deadlifting um, in the, in the rest of the lead up. And, and I think you'll be okay. Whereas the other lifts you're, you're less focused on recovery and more, more focused on keeping the, the technique refinement and, and not, not detraining so much. And so just so we're clear for the listeners as well, you've said maybe your last heavy deadlift will be two-ish weeks out. How many weeks prior to that would you typically have lifters handling intensities of 85, 90 plus percent? For, for a deadlift, not, not very often. I mean, uh, for, for a deadlift approach, I might have, you know, three weeks of escalating singles or whatever rep range we're working up. Um, if it's a gym test and, and that's generally about it. So we might take the last heavy deadlift at 10 days out or, or somewhere around there. Um, you know, still do a little bit of deadlifting in the last week, but it, it, it's, it's relatively short so that we're not, you know, pounding away at, at heavy deadlifts week after week and, and kind of uh, running ourselves in the ground that way. So, so, so far we've sort of discussed um, in the peaking and tapering concept, we've discussed like the front end, we've spoken about peaking and how we need exposure to sufficiently heavy weights, different lifts and different lifters might need weights of differing max intensities and for differing durations. On the other side of that, that peak intensity is usually where the taper lies. Um, for you and your athletes, what types of things might we see in a taper and how much variation is there between lifters and between lifts? There's a lot to that question. Um, Sorry. Well, let's take it in parts. <laughs> Sorry. Let's talk about just what might a taper entail and we'll go back to the other two. So, so for me, the, the taper tends to just be in the last week where we have somewhat of a reduction in volume compared to what a normal week would look like. Outside of that, it, it tends to be fairly linear leading up to it, as long as they're responding well to training. You know, if, if we have top sets built in there and they're still going kind of as expected as, as we ramp things up, then we won't really pull back much on volume at all until that last week, um, if any, really. So I, I think that's that's something where I've, I've kind of changed my, my thought process towards that over time, whereas in the past, um, my taper would be pretty aggressive and I'd want to focus more on making sure they're as fresh as possible and ready to go. Um, there can be some, some downfalls with that because you, you lose some of the, the skill acquisition that you, that you, you know, spent so much time um, trying to acquire with, uh, with your training volume in the lead up. So I think on average, one of the things that I've changed over the last few years is, is not pulling back quite so much, especially if the lead up in the last three, four weeks has been showing, you know, signs of improvement, there's, there's probably not going to be any benefit from pulling back more from there. So what, what kind of um, ways would you pull back? Like what percentage of volume are we cutting away? How much intensity are we cutting away? That kind of thing. The intensity is generally going to be fairly similar to what they've been doing. And 
what I like to do is is try to set up the micro cycles so that their their heavy days are the days where they're performing best. So, you know, if we have a lift, I mean that makes sense. But if we have a lift where they're they're training it at a relatively high frequency, say three to four days a week, we want to try to prioritize whatever day is is their heavy day. You know, with the top sets and, and singles and things like that. So. I'll kind of look for those trends in the the weeks and months leading up to a competition, and then we'll we'll slot in their their heavy stuff on the day where performance seems to be best. So you know, ideally, that's that's a day towards the end of the week where maybe they have their their heavy squat and deadlift together, that kind of thing. And we try to look for those micro cycle patterns where, you know, that heavy day is going well and trending upward, and we try to you know not worry so much about the other days and just kind of get the work in on those days. Um, but if we have that pattern set up well, where they're performing well at the end of the week on that heavy day, we really don't need to change much in terms of the structure of the last week. You know, it might be a reduction in volume, but the rest of the training can really stay largely the same if, if those patterns are, are trending in the right direction. So when I was preparing for this episode, I'd supposed that you might have a sort of stepwise reduction in volume for a couple of the lifts and maybe a more abrupt type of a bench. Um, simply because that's, that's quite common, but you've moved towards this more abrupt one. Um, mm. and you've said that typically if you're seeing peak performances across the weeks, continue to improve or roughly meet your, meet your expectations. That's not a problem. Um, how does that then change? How does that change your inferences about, about a lifter's capabilities from their heaviest single? Like, do you presume them to be more fatigued and to have maybe more performance suppression at that stage? Or does that not really play out in practice? I think it depends on the situation, but that, that tends to be something that affects deadlift a lot more than the other lifts where in a deadlift, you can get a lot more of a super compensation effect from, from a taper than you, than you might be able to on the other lifts. So, you know, I've seen situations where a lifter might miss, you know, like 90 or 92% or, or just really struggle with it. And then, you know, a week, a week or two later in competition, they, they smoke 102 percent. You know, I've I've had a lifter who missed 230 a week out and then came back um, on meet day and hit 255, no problem. Looked like a looked like an easy second attempt. Yeah, that's wild. Um, so obviously he was very fatigued in that that acute phase, that that acute training session. But um, deadlift can can have those kind of large percentage swings, and and you don't see that quite so much with the other lifts. And so for you as a coach, what, like, what are you monitoring that makes you still think that 255 is there? I think if my lifter missed 230 <laughs> in their heaviest pull, I'd be like shitting the bed as a coach and thinking, all right, well, let's, let's hope for, you know, 230 to 235 on comp day. Right. Well, there, there was a lot of life, life stress heading into that session that, that probably affected it as well. So I have to, you have to understand the context of that as well as, you know, some of their previous training sessions where, you know, maybe they did 220 for a really good set of, of four or something like that. And, you know, you, you kind of rely more on, on the bulk of their training sessions and not just one acute one where maybe they just got into their head and, and uh, weren't able to execute appropriately. Sure. So that's probably actually a pretty good lesson in general for the coaches out there, which is look for trends, don't just act in isolation. Right. That'd be fair. Yeah. It'd, it'd certainly be easy to panic in that situation though. <laughs> oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I've got a lot of, I've got a lot of lifters who would be like that and sort of, you know, even if the bulk of their training cycle is going really well, they might have one bad session and they want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. What advice, exactly. would, what advice would you give to them? If any of them are listening, um, if something would, like that were to happen. I mean, I think we've all struggled with that. It's, it's, it's very easy to fixate on our struggles and our failures and not celebrate our successes. So I don't know that I have a good answer for that, but I think over time as an athlete, you, you kind of just get used to that and you, you understand the ebbs and flows of training and, and kind of know what to expect and understand that, you know, you get what you, you get done what you can on a day like that, even if it, it feels terrible and, it's not the weights that you want to be moving that tends to set you up better for the upcoming training sessions than, you know, um, missing weights or, or just, uh, you know, going home and giving up that kind of thing. Um, 
And I think that's something I, I know I've gotten better at that personally. And, and I think I've gotten better at instilling that in my athletes as well is, is, uh, is really just kind of taking what's there on a day that, that might be frustrating in the moment, but understanding that you're setting yourself up better for the upcoming training sessions instead of creating a snowball effect of frustration and bad training sessions. As a coach and as an athlete, how do you balance, how do you balance sort of being okay with little failures or things not being quite the way you'd want them to be with still maintaining like a really strong desire to put out your best performances and fire up and things when you need it? Like how can you be sanguine but at the same time fired up? How can you be what? Uh, how can you be sanguine or like chilled out about things not always working out and at the same time fired up and really motivated to perform your best every day? I, I think, you know, your, your motivation and your desire to train will, will change on a regular basis. So that's, that's more about setting, setting long-term goals and having those in mind, you know, everybody that, that competes in powerlifting or takes their training seriously, you know, they, they don't need motivation to train. It's just part of what they do. Uh, so in that they, they kind of just understand that there's, there's going to be good and bad days and you take it for what it is. But as long as long-term you're, you're trending in, in the direction that you want to for your goals, then that's, what's most important. Yeah. I'd say that's, that's pretty fair and good advice. Yeah. I think, I think one way that I like to frame it with my lifters is, you know, you may have one bad training session, but you've had many in the lead up to that training session those good training sessions and the adaptations that you've made from those good training sessions don't just disappear with one bad one. Mm. And it's just, you know, you may have had a bad day and you weren't able to, you know, hit the numbers you wanted to or whatever the case is. It's just that one session. So I've tried to use statistics to make my clients feel better. Um, I've used, <laughs> I've used the concept of regression to the mean. Um, and so for those of you who, who don't know mathematics, the idea is if you have, if you have a, um, if you have something where there's, you know, there's an average, um, there's an average response, say you have an average level of training performance and it's subject to random fluctuation. Alex is filming me because he thinks this is ridiculous and it's subject, <laughs> it's subject to random fluctuation. Then on a purely probabilistic basis, each time you get a fluctuation, that's a long way from the average. The next time that you measure that same variable, it should be back closer to average. And so what I tell my lifters if they have an absolute, absolute shit show of a session is statistically your next session will probably be better than this one. <laughs> that doesn't tend to work because most people find it hard to visualize that. Alex seems to find it hard to visualize that, but it's not a bad way to approach it. If you say, Hey, you just had your worst session of the whole mesocycle and it's one out from competition, then you're near certainty to do better than that on comp day, right? What do you reckon, Alex? Well, I think if someone was being emotional and you gave them that, they'd, Probably fucking slap <laughs> yeah, on this. I mean, Eric's eyes glazed over, and, and I thought he'd love it. <laughs> In all seriousness, I, I don't know how responsive I would be to that in the moment, but I exactly. understand. I mean, if I had a whiteboard and I could draw a graph, I'm sure that I could win you over with it, maybe a little bit better. Okay. But, but in all seriousness, um, so. I think it is easy to apply reason from a distance to training. And that's one of the reasons why maybe having a coach is really beneficial. And it's also one of the reasons why maybe doing some reflection outside of your sessions or at the end of a week or a block is really useful. But when you are like, when you are training athletes who are having a bad day or when you're an athlete yourself and you're having a bad day, what are some useful ways that you can in the moment start applying some reason or try and rescue a bad session? I, th I think sometimes you, you have to step away for a little bit. Sometimes you might have to rewarm up for a lift and, and, you know, kind of take your time away from that or even uh, move it to the next day. If, if, if it's a recovery issue or something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's something that's pretty difficult because it's, it's really easy to get in, into your head in those situations. Um, I, and I've seen it even with, you know, you mentioned that we have very high level lifters training at our gym, like Bryce and Natalie and uh, quite a few others, but all of them have had days where, you know, things just aren't going their way. They're, they're nearly in tears and it's just, 
you know, seems like the end of the world in the moment, but the important part is being able to turn that around and get something productive done that day uh, for the most part, unless there's a reason where you just, you, you should move that session or just, you know, scrap it. But for the most part, it's, it's more important to be able to get some work done and set yourself up better for what's to come. Yeah. In my experience, I'm actually not sure almost that it's important what you do provided that you sort of choose to do it. I think the athletes that I have who I'll open a training update from and they say something like I had a bad, like I was having a bad day today, whatever it is, like I missed my top set or everything felt bad or, you know, my back was sore and they say, this was the thing that I think was best to do. And I did it. And, you know, like they feel like they've taken a step forward. Like you said, like, you know, sure, they yeah. still made something productive of it. They're the ones who seem to be able to reconcile it better psychologically. Whereas I think the ones who catastrophize and say like the plan is concrete and failure to adhere to the plan is failure overall. And I'm not going anywhere from this session. They're the ones who get really destroyed. And so like more and more when I talk to my clients, I'm trying to frame the idea of training planning as being like a roadmap and something that's malleable where we're we're just trying to get you from A to B and it's going to be subject to change. But provided that they understand where they're trying to get and what purpose the, the sessions serve, they should still be able to be productive on their bad days, you know? And, and I think once, once we're able to have a conversation, uh, especially if it's somebody that I'm, that I'm coaching remotely, we're able to kind of tease out the variables that cause that to be a bad session. And, and then for them, it's, it's a little bit less stressful, you know, because they, they understand that, you know, they weren't, they weren't sleeping well prior to that, or they just didn't eat enough um, the day prior or something like that, or some kind of crazy life stress is going to affect their training for likely the next few weeks, you know, something like that. If we're able to have conversations about that and, and just kind of understand that, you know, you might not be able to hit the weights that you've been hitting over the last weeks and months, uh, but it's still important to be able to get in there and, and do what you can, then they're able to approach it with, um, you know, a more calm mindset. So wrestling this idea back a little bit towards peaking, which is ostensibly the purpose of this episode. Um, when we're, when we have people in a peak for whom the plan needs adjustment, you know, whether they're, whether they're just not hacking the current training volume or lifestyle stress and stuff does come up. What types of adjustments do you think are appropriate to make and how much can we pull away from say volume or intensity without giving up the important training adaptations that we need? to peak someone well. Mm. So there's, there's different ends of the spectrum here. I'll, I'll kind of go through a, a more recent example that's kind of current in my mind right now. I have an athlete who's, who's made considerable progress over the last year. He's brought his total from probably about 600 to 700 um, in about a year's time. And he's just a, a sponge for volume. He's, he soaks up everything that I give him until recently because he's been – applying for um, medical school and having to fly out for interviews to different medical schools basically every week, sometimes multiple times a week. And that's put a huge dent in his ability to recover from training. So he has a meet coming up and we've had to basically take a a pretty large reduction in in volume because of that. And that's, that's really been the only way that he's been able to approach similar numbers to what he was doing when, you know, the recovery uh, resources were better. Um, And then on the, complete other end of the spectrum there's some where you know maybe we've we've been doing low reps high intensity for too long and they start to start to detrain a little bit where you know maybe their heavy days feel a little bit off you know their technique feels a little bit off and they just you know squats aren't feeling right that kind of thing and a lot of times that's just because we haven't been doing enough so in those situations you might actually increase volume a little bit to to get a little more skill acquisition and technique refinement and that kind of thing um, that's probably a little bit less rare because I, I shy away from pulling back volume for lengthy periods of time. But, um, you know, that those, those are kind of the two spectrums that we're looking at there. And in a peak generally, what purposes do light days serve and how much contrast do we typically need between heavy and light days for them to actually serve those purposes? What would you define as a light day? Well, that's part of why I left the question so open. So, <laughs> so, um, in my own peaking, in my own peaking practice, there'd be two days that I would consider light or easy days. One would be one that in terms of intensity is not that far removed from their heavier days, but in terms of proximity to failure or RPE is lower. 
So say if your heaviest day was whatever it is, 82% for a few sets of four to five, you could have a light day where you did 80% for a couple of doubles and it would mm. still be, it would still be considerably easier or more commonly I'd have a reduction in intensity. So say your heavy day is 82 or 85%, your light day might be 70% and also have a reduction in the number of reps or be further from failure as well. So then there's, then there's a reduction in stress from both intensity and from proximity to failure. And there might also be a reduction in volume or is usually a reduction in volume on that day too, because when I put them in there, it's to facilitate recovery. Um, but yeah, when I, when I asked the question, I tried to leave it very open so I didn't guide your response too much. So. True. I think something like 80, 80% for two versus 82% for four or something like that, that 80% day, might be just as difficult, if not more difficult than the 82% day, depending on where it's placed in the week. So if it's coming after a strenuous high volume day or something like that, that, that weight range might feel just as, if not more difficult than it did for more reps in, in previous days. Um, and that's not uncommon to see because, you know, sometimes people will approach, you know, a, a quote, quote unquote light session with, you know, a, a little more carelessness and, not as much aggression towards a weight range that they need to respect. And, and then, you know, essentially it just feels heavier, heavier because of that. Um, but to get back to your question, I, I, I try to structure the, the micro cycle so that we have, you know, we have days that are more targeted towards, towards volume or some kind of um, technique deficit that we're working on. And then days that are targeted more towards, this is your heavy day and they know that that's their heavy day. This is where we're going to start to push it, especially as we get into a peaking phase. This is day where you're going to have your, your heavy sets of three or your heavy singles or whatever it is. Um, so they, they kind of understand that that's their, that's their, you know, priority squat day. The, the volume day is where it's more just about getting the work done. It might be at a lower intensity. It's, it's whatever kind of volume we need just to, to push progress there. And then, you know, I think having the athlete understand that is important too. So I guess the next question then is if we have that main day, which you consider the quote unquote hard day and then that secondary day targeted a weakness, what is the difference between those two days in terms of difficulty? Like what RPE cap would you use on one day relative to the other? That, that kind of depends on, on what phase we're in in training. You know, if, if we're in a, yeah, if we're talking, if we're talking about peaking. Yeah. If, if we're in a peaking phase, then the RPEs might be fairly similar. It's just going to be, depending on the exercise and the variation, it might be a rather large difference in intensity, but the RPs might be fairly, fairly similar because we're still you know, trying to push whatever variation it is there. Um, and, and speaking of variation and, and microcycle patterns and things like that, I'll, I'll tend to more so recently keep the variation that I have in there as opposed to going to full competition specificity. Um, you know, so if we, if we have somebody who's squatting three days a week, we don't necessarily need to have all three of those days as, as competition low bar squats. You know, we can have a high bar squat, a safety bar squat, a pause squat, whatever it may be. And if they're making what, what appears to be steady progress with that, we don't really need to change that during the peaking phase. And I think that's, that's another thing that I've, I've kind of transitioned more to recently. Yeah, for sure. And when you have, like you said, you have these two days that serve different purposes in the program, right? So you've got your, your heavy day and then your day that's more addressing weaknesses and getting some volume in. Do they have to progress concomitantly or can they serve their purposes and progress at different rates or have one maybe even not progress at all for a while? I think most commonly they'll, they'll tend to be progressive together, but they don't have to be. You know, if, if it's if it's more than two days a week frequency, there's usually one day in there where things just don't feel as good. And, you know, you might be stagnant in terms of the weight they're using, even with escalating RPEs, but you know, maybe your heavy day is going well and your volume work is going well, but you're, you're the day where you have, you know, a high bar pause squat just doesn't feel like you can put much more weight on the bar. And, and that's, that's not that big of a deal in that situation. Sure. And so when we have a day, when we have a day like, the high bar pause squat that feels heavy and you can't put more weight on the bar. Um, as a coach, what do you look for to be certain that that day is serving its purpose for the athlete? I, I think in that situation, we'd look more at 
microcycle or the mesocycle as a whole and make sure that on average the the days that we're trying to prioritize are still being progressive you know if they're able to add weight week to week on their heavier day then i'm not worried too much about how the other day is going yeah that's something that mike said to us a couple of weeks ago that he's not concerned about the sort of progress on that secondary day so long as the competition movement is improving right is that the same approach you have then yeah, I, I think so. And, and, you know, like I said, on average, they, they do tend to be progressive together, especially if, if we're in a situation where the athlete is able to, able to recover appropriately from each training day. You know, if they're in a, in a caloric surplus, we'd kind of expect to see everything be progressive together. But it's not always that way. So, so you predominantly use RPE in your programming. Am I right in assuming that? For the most part, yeah. Yeah. So if you were to... Um, have a peaking cycle or peaking block how would your rpa progress along the peaking block in that main day and then how would it progress in that secondary day if we're if we're talking from like four weeks out onward then we'll probably have some escalating singles ranging anywhere from six to eight and a half rpe Mm -hmm. that's and that's probably about as as heavy as we'll go is about an eight and a half nine um, you know, maybe around a nine on bench, but the other lifts will probably end at an eight, eight and a half, that kind of thing. And that's also, you know, sometimes lifter dependent too. So if it's somebody that I know is going to overshoot and turn an eight into a, you know, a max type of attempt or try to hit a PR, then, you know, I might scale back their RPs a little bit in the plan. But outside of that, that's that's kind of what I look at on, on average. Yeah, you can call it an Instagram eight on that program, that program <laughs> and then they know for certain. Yeah, Hanny, Hanny used to give me sevens when he wanted nines. Oh yeah. <laughs> then he fired I, I, Alex actually. He said, <laughs> get lost, start coaching yourself. I'm sick of this. And so he did. I, I have a few like that and that and that's exactly what it is. Is you know, I'll give him a, a single at seven or eight and it turns into a nine or ten pretty quick. Oh, but at least yeah. at least we know what to expect. <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. I have I have one lifter who will undershoot um his bench and overshoot his deadlift, so I wanted an eight for both and I've given him a nine for bench and a six and a half for deadlift. Name and shame it. Go for it. No, nah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm going to make up who it is. Definitely Does he? Shout definitely. out Potts. No. no. Okay, that was a guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. So let's try, and, let's try and wrap this conversation up in a way that's going to help coaches. What are, what are, from your experiences as a coach, What are the biggest misconceptions and maybe most important practices that coaches can employ to peak their athletes successfully for powerlifting? I think biggest misconceptions would be that you automatically have to remove a ton of volume in order for your athlete to be ready. That's something that I've gradually shifted away from over time um, and tried to be more, more adaptive to how the athletes responding to training and just just pull away enough to have them ready, but still, you know, feeling somewhat similar to what a training week would feel like for them. I have a question on that. How did you progress from that um, old sort of idiom of like reducing volume a lot to now keeping a lot of it in? Did you just sort of gradually end up there? Yeah, I think it's something that's, that's more gradual over time. Um, And I've had some, some high level athletes that were kind of hyper responders to volume and, I learned a lot from those situations and started to kind of gradually apply those to more, more of the intermediate lifters that we, that we work with on average. And, you know, you, you start to pull away less and less and you see that, you know, they're still performing well or even better than expected. And, you know, you just kind of learn from those situations. Yeah. Cool, man. So you said that was your biggest misconception um, was that you had to pull volume back a lot. And what was the biggest lesson? Biggest lesson that I've learned in coaching people? Yeah, sure. I think the, the psychological component of instilling confidence in your lifter is, is hugely underrated. So outside of just um, the numbers and, and the nerdy part of it that, that we like to do, um, I think being able to, to meet your lifter with the same arousal that they need like on meet day coaching and on the lead up to a competition where you know we're figuring out numbers and trying to get to make sure that training is going in the right direction 
um, instilling the confidence in them to perform well, both in training and in the meet itself is, is probably the most important soft skill that you learn over time. For sure. All right, we're going to take a quick break, guys, and then we'll be right back with the four questions to tell us everything that we need to know about a person. Welcome back to Weekly Weights. It's episode 89. We're here with Eric and we're going to hit him with the four questions that tell us everything that we need to know about a person. Alex, take it away. They've just told us off air that you're prepared and that you and Bryce were discussing this in detail at your last training Lately. session. So we're, expect, we're expecting good, good answers here. He's actually got notes on his arm. I can see him. He, just, <laughs> he went to have a drink and his sleeve fell down and there was like question one. Next was it, you know? <laughs> All right, so question one is, if you could take anyone out to dinner, dead or alive, who would it be? Mm. Um, I mean, there's, there's a lot that would come to mind with uh, more recent events, but I think one that would be really interesting for me would be, I, I had a, an elementary school teacher in, in fourth, I think fourth and fifth grade, his name was uh, Mr. Fitch, and I really liked the way that he he taught. He made learning literally anything exciting and enjoyable and was able to get me engaged at a, at a young age where I was kind of quiet and reserved and not wanting to participate and kind of transitioned me to being appreciative of, of the learning process. And he unfortunately passed away when, when I was in fifth grade um, while he was our teacher from um, from ALS. And I think it would be interesting now to be able to have a conversation with him, um, given having more life experience and, and things like that. Do you think that you said his name was Mr. Fitch, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think that Mr. Fitch's influence as a teacher shaped some of how you go about coaching people? I, I could see that. Yeah. Um, I think the the biggest takeaway there was was that you you can make literally anything fun to learn if you, if you're invested in it and taking the right approach towards it. So that's I, I try to be kind of an open book to my athletes and willing to answer any question. And you know we we still have, try to have fun too. But um, yeah, I think that's that's all I got there. Yeah, sure, man. No, that's a great answer. Question two, Alex. Our question two is, who's your favorite athlete of all time? I have a lot, but my my favorite sport, both to play and watch, has always been basketball. So um, I, th I think I would have to say Kobe. So and, and that one that one hit me pretty hard this this week when he passed away a few days ago. Um, but I always, I was never a fan of the Lakers, but I always respected what he brought to competition and even what he was doing, you know, after his retirement was inspiring, um, in terms of his, his growth as a mentor and, and business person and those kind of things. So, um, that's somebody who, who I, who I always looked to looked up to growing up. Yeah. I think Kobe, like for me as a non-basketball aficionado, he's still a character that was sort of larger than life across as long as I can remember being interested in sport, you know, and I have a, I have a Kobe, do you call it a Jersey or a singlet for basketball? Jersey. Jersey. Both, both works. Well, like, you know, I have a Kobe Jersey in my closet and like, you know, I went to one Lakers game and the thing that made me so excited to be there was him. You know, I knew who he was forever. Like he was just an incredible figure who was so inspiring for someone who doesn't even follow the sport. I can't imagine for people who are, into it and how big of a deal that was Alex you yeah I mean basketball's been part of my life since I was eight years old um and I was the same as you Eric not not a Lakers fan not a huge fan of like I never followed Kobe I never rooted for him in the finals but like when I found out he died I literally like my uh, fiance told me and I, I said no no he didn't like Kobe wouldn't die like Kobe never dies like Kobe's just he always he always comes back and he always keeps coming back and it's that is that like work ethic and training and that competitive spirit that was like he was completely unmatched like other than probably Jordan like no one comes close to the competitive nature competitive spirit it's like 
undying will to win like all the time. Yeah, man. When you said given recent events that there were other people that you'd think about taking to dinner, the question one was Kobe front of mind. Yeah. Yeah. I would say so. Um, there's a few others that I could think of, but, but yeah. Sure, man. All right, let's move on to question three. I'm hoping this gets a little bit less morbid. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, this is easily the most serious four questions we've done so far, but I feel like it's been good. All right, question three is which movie or television character do you most resemble? If you say someone from like Schindler's List or something, I'm going to get just... <laughs> I'll be too upset to continue. <laughs> no, I've, I've been told... I don't. I don't think it's accurate at all. But I've been told either Brad Pitt or Matt Damon, something like that. I can actually see a little bit Damon, not Pitt. You don't reckon a tiny bit of Brad Pitt in the jawline? <laughs> no, no. I can definitely see Matt Damon, big time. What about Invictus Matt Damon? No, Matt Damon, the footy player. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, for sure. All right, we'll take Matt Damon. That's awesome. All right, I question played, four. I'd be a little bit in college. What's that? You played that, footy in college. Is that what you call it? Oh, it's yeah, confusing. Right. Footy means a lot in Australia. And depending on the context, you just know which footy they're talking about, you know? Okay. So we're, <laughs> we're private school boys, so we, we call footy rugby union. Okay. I, I played rugby in college for a little bit. What position were you? Uh, wing. Nice. How tall are you? Uh, about 5'8", five, 5'9". Dude, you're on a podcast. You can eat stats so hard. You said you were like <laughs> yeah, six foot six. Really, he's really five three. <laughs> yeah, maybe. That was him bluffing. <laughs> I'm, I'm still still taller than most of the TSA coaches, so it's fine. <laughs> Man, cop that TSA. Yeah, Bryce is what five five, five six. Yeah, yeah. Man, you got to give us some ammo for Joe Stanek when we eventually get him on because I think he's the, <laughs> the last one. Yeah, the last one left. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll have some for you off air. Sweet. Okay. Question four, your life's being made into a montage and you get to choose the music that it's set to. What music do you choose? Are we talking like a morbid celebration of life? Or oh, fuck, just... so far it sounded pretty morbid. <laughs> <man>. <laughs> just a, or just a soundtrack that you imagine. Just a soundtrack you imagine yourself being set to. Um, so like when I was... Whenever I would drive around at, at night, I, I grew up in New York and kind of grew up on, on 90s rap and hip hop and that kind of thing. So I always imagined like if there was a movie made about me or about my life events, it would, it would be like with, with Mob Deep as, as the majority of the soundtrack. Because uh, I always liked the kind of 90s New York grimy rap. So I, I would say probably Survival of the Fittest by Mob Deep. That's a banger. Uh, yeah, I, I like I like the first line. Um, there's a war going on outside. No man is safe from. It just kind of sets the scene there. Man, you actually sounded like you might be a pretty juicy rapper. Do you want to maybe rap for us on the podcast? Four bars uh, about weekly weights. I, I used to I used to DJ, but I, I haven't I haven't laid down any sixteens. <laughs> That's pretty bad. <laughs> what type of music were you DJing? Um, it was mostly like like party stuff and hip hop that kind of thing. Did you ever do that? Um, you know that four bar Friday that Damien Lillard started on Instagram. Do you remember that? Yeah. Did you ever do that? I mean, I've I've written verses, but I've never actually recorded anything. I would be keen to see them, yeah. dude. Okay, I'm gonna make public something that I've got a few projects that are really important to the world at large that yeah. I haven't really started. And one of them's a musical project where like, I just don't have the technology or the know-how to do it, but I know that this would go off. Do you reckon you could mash up Sandstorm, like the rude Sandstorm with Levels by Avicii? <laughs> what, what's, what's the beat per minute on those? Hmm? Yeah. Uh, shit, I don't know. It'd be, it'd be like 148 or something. Whatever's really standard for Sandstorm would be faster, surely. Da -da -da -da. I reckon Sandstorm would be you reckon? a little bit faster. I, I think Sandstorm is faster than Levels, but surely you could like just beat match a bit or something. Right? It, it's probably doable, yeah. Fuck yeah. All right. Well, there we go. 
got the, the Eric, of consent from Eric. Yeah, the Eric and Weekly Weights mashup of Sandstorm and Levels. <laughs> so we we actually have we have an iPad that we use at the gym. Yeah. With um, with an app on it called I think it's called DJ the app, but um, you can integrate Spotify into it and put you know different Spotify songs on a virtual turntable and actually yeah. mix mix and scratch different songs. It's pretty cool. Okay, I might actually do that and send it to you okay. <laughs> this afternoon. I'm very busy, but I'm sure I can find two or three hours to... <laughs> to... Oh, you, you'll waste all day on that. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Also, um, one last thing. What's your favorite gym banger? Just because Bryce said you have a sick, sick uh, hip-hop playlist. What, what um, hip-hop song am I missing from my playlist that people need to add right now? My, my favorite hype track would be Monster by Future. Okay. okay, cool. Just because you didn't ask, but I'm going to tell you mine anyway. Okay. Buster Rhymes, Break Your Neck. Oh, that's a good one, yeah. Mine is Andy Up, but specifically the remix that's got Buster Rhymes and stuff. Okay. Specifically because there's a verse right near the end where the guy says, eat deep dirt, N-word. It's Burke. That's my surname. I put in work until it hurt, N-word. <laughs> so I just, I pretty much mute it until that point and then crank it really loud and do a set. So you guys like the 90s, 2000s rap too? I like it for the gym, yeah. yeah. I like pretty much all music. Like, I'm that person. Yeah. yeah. Those, both of those songs are actually in the rotation on a pretty regular basis. Bryce likes Buster Rhymes too. Yeah. My favorite one from recent times is um, Drake and YG, Who Do You Love? Okay. Yeah, that's not a bad song. Absolutely banger. What happens at the gym when Bryce wants to play like Katy Perry's Roar really <laughs> loudly? I, I don't let it happen. <laughs> I, I also put an end to the trash bag campaign. <laughs> yeah, hide all the trash bags. I did, couldn't, I did. Couldn't put anything in the bins for like weeks yeah. when Bryce was trying to peek because he was always hiding his weights. Right. Uh, hilarious. Bryce is my coach now, so I probably shouldn't slag him too much or else, <laughs> or else he'll murder me. All right, man. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a really good episode. For people Thanks, who want bro. to reach out to you um, about coaching, what's the best way to find you? Uh, probably through email, eric at thestrengthathlete.com or eric at elevatebarbellclub.com. And right now I'm on Instagram at elevatebarbell. Okay, Matt. Well, thank you so much again. I'm Will at w.berkmanpt on Instagram. I'm Alex at alexhayes underscore process. And we'll chat to you guys next week.